So what we're going to do this morning in the next little while is I see that over the last week what you've done is you've basically talked about war and peace from the perspective of either classical Jewish texts or contemporary Israeli thinkers. And that includes Tal Becker as a, as a contemporary Israeli thinker or politically active person. What I want to do is I actually want to talk about contemporary American Jewish theologians and philosophers on the issue. So I want to talk about something that I don't think you've had much time to look at this week. I'm going to focus specifically on two 20th century uh, diaspora philosophers. That is Abraham Joshua Heschel and Emmanuel Levinas. The three main topics of the talk are going to be God, the other, and the Israeli soldier. And my point in this talk is in some ways to dialogue with Yehuda's first morning, if we can remember bleary-eyed and tired as we all got here, but still bright-eyed and bushy-tailed somehow at the same time, that Yehuda's talk essentially was about how the rabbis, how Chazal viewed power or didn't view power didn't necessarily understand or have a framework for Jewish sovereignty. This morning's talk is gonna be very much in dialogue with that, and we'll see sort of where we've come in um, two millennia. The point here is not just to study these 20th century philosophers and theologians in the abstract. The point is to see how relevant their thoughts can be to the Israeli situation or the Israeli perspective. And with that, let's dive right in. If you open to your page one, Abraham Joshua Heschel, many of us think of him as arm in arm with Martin Luther King, but I wanna give you a little bit more about him, which is born in 1907 in Poland, he actually had his own uh, brush with the Nazis, and that brush with the Nazis landed him ultimately out of harm's way, but it ended up uh, killing his mother and his two sisters. Um, he had an additional sister who was killed in a German bombing in London during World War II. So we don't think about Abraham Joshua Heschel as a Holocaust survivor, so to speak, but he certainly, the Holocaust impacted him very much, and that is gonna play into some of what we talk about this morning. This conversation with the late Dr. Abraham Joshua Heschel is essentially a conversation that was had several um, years earlier, but Carl Stern of NBC, Carl Stein, excuse me, you'd think I'd know that, um, of NBC had a conversation with Heschel, and in the interview, what does he ask him? Take a look at number one. He says, at this time, one year ago, I was covering a trial of priests and nuns the Bariga trial in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Prospective jurors, one after another, when being questioned by the judge and lawyers, said they thought it was wrong for clergymen to be involved in politics. And don't forget, of course, the Heschel, who was very much virulently against the carpet bombing going on as a result of the Vietnam War. So Heschel's very involved in politics, as we know, not only civil rights, that their job is to administer to spiritual needs why don't you stick to spiritual needs? It's a great question, right? Why don't you 
You, you get the sense that he was being very PC until that last sentence. Why don't you, Rabbi, why don't you stick to spiritual needs? And I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of us had asked our rabbi that. Um, Heschel says, that's a very good statement. In fact, it's such a good statement that if the prophets were alive, they would already be sent to jail by these jurors because the prophets mixed into social political issues. And frankly, I would say that God seems to be a non-religious person because if you read the words of God in the Bible, he always mixes in political and in social issues. My Lord, you, God, you should worry about spirituality and not about politics and social injustice. Do you hear me? Pardon me. This rhetorical response by Heschel really undergirds a very important theory about the relationship between politics, that is what happens in the world, how the state is run and how society looks, and its relationship to moral failings. Because for Heschel, these were not two separate domains. If there was a political failing or a political crisis, for him it was a result of a moral crisis. It was, it was the result of some moral failing in society. And when he writes even about World War II, which is what we have in the second source here, when he writes even about World War II, he does not only blame the Nazis for World War II, nor does he blame the apathy of the world for World War II. Take a look at what he does in number two. This is from an essay called The Meaning of This War, which is about World War II, and it's in moral grandeur and spiritual audacity for those who'd like to read it in full at some point. Let fascism not serve as an alibi for our conscience. We have failed to fight for right, for justice, for goodness. As a result, we must fight against wrong, against injustice, against evil. Who's the we? Is all people, Jews, the we. We have failed to offer sacrifices on the altar of peace. Now we must offer sacrifices on the altar of war. A tale is told, and this is an unbelievable metaphor and I hope it stays with you for a very long time. A tale is told of a band of inexperienced mountain climbers. Without guide, they struck recklessly into the wilderness. For those who came in, we're on number two on page one. Suddenly, a rocky ledge gave way beneath their feet and they were tumbled headlong into a dismal pit. In the darkness of the pit, they recovered from their shock, only to find themselves set upon by a swarm of angry snakes. Every crevice became alive with fanged, hissing things. For each snake the desperate men slew, ten more seemed to lash out in its place. Strangely enough, one man seemed to stand aside from the fight. When the indignant voices of his struggling companions reproached him for not fighting, he called back, if we remain here, we shall be dead before the snakes. I am searching for a way of escape from the pit for all of us. Our world seems not unlike a pit of snakes, he writes. We did not sink into the pit in 1939 or even in 1933. We had descended into it generations ago, and the snakes have sent their venom into the bloodstream of humanity. 
gradually paralyzing us, numbing nerve after nerve, dulling our minds, darkening our vision. Good and evil, which were once as real as day and night, have become a blurred mist. In our everyday life, we worshiped force, despised compassion, and obeyed no law but our unappeasable appetite. The vision of the sacred has all but died in the soul of man. And when greed, envy, and the reckless will to, the reckless will to power, the serpents that were cherished in the bosom of our civilization came to maturity, they broke out of their dens to fall upon the helpless nations. The outbreak of this war was no surprise. It came as a long expected sequel to spiritual disaster. Now these are very tough words because if the we includes literally everyone, all of society experiencing moral turpitude and the moral turpitude that allowed for, I suppose, fascism to take root, then in some ways he's blaming the victim. In some ways he's blaming the victim. These are very strong words, but I want you to think about the fact that in another way he's empowering the victim. Because he's saying, you weren't powerless to stop this. We created an environment, a broad society, a humanity that would allow these snakes to persist. And it's not just about the snakes, it's about the pit. And how do we get here in the first place? And to him, the question is, what is the pit? What is it? What are the moral failings that got us into this situation in the first place? By the way, can I just get a raise of hands? How many people are uncomfortable with his assessment of how World War II started? Good. It's good. It's, what, what time is it? It's 9.15. We've already made you uncomfortable. This is excellent. This is excellent. Yeah, it's, it's, it's radical. It's radical, but it's Heschel. Heschel's not interested in the politics of it. He's interested in the morality that brought about the politics. So what are the issues to him that are most significant? And I want you to look down at the bolded section, the beginning of a paragraph, the bolded section where it says the conscience of the world. It says the conscience of the world was destroyed by those who were wont to blame others rather than themselves. Let us remember we revered the instinct but distrusted ideals. We labored to perfect engines and let our inner life go wreck. We ridiculed superstition until we lost our ability to believe. We have helped to extinguish the light of our that our fathers had kindled. We have bartered holiness for convenience, loyalty for success, love for power, wisdom for diplomas, prayer for sermons, not bad, sorry Wes. <laughs> we, listen, I, I worked in the rabbinate for eight years. Sermons are tough to give, okay? Wisdom for information, tradition for fashion. Yes, and for those of you who watched this video, I worked in the rabbinate for eight years, let's clarify. I was a clergy member at an Orthodox synagogue We'll use all the proper vocabulary. Done. Okay, welcome, welcome to my life. <clears throat> What's very important to him is ignoring the inner life of the soul. And the inner life of the soul engages itself not only in some abstract spirituality, but it also engages itself in responsibility for the other. And that he goes on to say, 
in the next paragraph. We cannot dwell at ease under the sun of our civilization as our ancestors thought we could. What was in the minds of our martyred brothers in, what was in the mind of our martyrs' brothers in Poland in their last hours, they died with disdain and scorn for a civilization in which the killing of civilians could become a carnival for fun, for a civilization which gave us mastery over the forces of nature but lost control over the force of ourself. A messenger recently came and conveyed the following message from all European Jews who are being slaughtered in the hell of Poland. We Jews despise all those who live in safety and do nothing to save us. Wow. Wow. I'd imagine we might get a few more hands raised if I asked the question that I asked a few minutes ago, if I asked it again. To him, the source of this inner life and this inner soul and this taking responsibility for others is going to be God and letting God in. Letting God into civilization, letting God into the halls of Congress, letting God into the factory, letting God onto Wall Street, letting God in. Not creating a compartmentalization where God is in the synagogue and outside in society, we are in just a different realm. That to him is the source of the problem, and I apologize that we're being so textually oriented at the moment, but I think we need some raw materials before we can find out how this all applies to the case of Israel. So if you look at number three on the bottom of page two, he says this very clearly, the role of God, and I promised you three major topics, God, the other, and the Israeli soldier. We're dealing with God now. When we talk about Heschel, Heschel is a man of the prophets, right? And the prophet's message, peace comes through God. Morality comes through God. Tanks and planes cannot redeem humanity. A man with a gun is like a beast without a gun. Don't forget that when we start talking about the Israeli soldier. The killing of snakes will save us for the moment, but not forever. The war will outlast the victory of arms if we fail to conquer the infamy of the soul, the indifference to crime when committed against others. For evil is indivisible. It is the same in thought and in speech, in private and in social life. The greatest task of our time is to take the souls of men out of the pit. The world has experienced that God is involved. Let us forever remember that the sense for the sacred is as vital to us as the light of the sun. There can be no nature without spirit, no world without Torah, no brotherhood without a father, no humanity without God. God will return to us when we are willing to let him in, into our banks and factories, into our Congress and clubs, into our homes and theaters. For God is everywhere or nowhere the father of all men or no man, concerned about everything or nothing. Only in his presence shall we learn that the glory of man is not in his will to power, but in his power of compassion. The glory of man is not in his will to power, but in his power of compassion. Man reflects either the image of his presence or that of a beast. Will the voices of those who in this very hour are pushing tumbrils with shriveled barebone corpses of Jews to a huge grave outside the ghetto walls reach the ears of statesmen? God is the answer for Heschel. Let's talk about the Israeli experience and how this works. If Heschel is a man of the Bible, 
There are plenty of images in the Bible of God as warrior. Those are not the images of God that Heschel is interested in. There are those who criticize Heschel. How naive of you. You think that bringing God into society is going to make things better? That may have worked against Nazism or fascism, which historians for a very long time believed was a godless movement. When your enemies are godless, then certainly saying that bringing God in is the answer feels like the answer. But today in Israel, so much of the conflict is motivated by God, by your view of God and religion and what you think God wants of you. And that's why I think Heschel has a lot to say for the Middle East today. Because to criticize Heschel for bringing in God and thinking that Heschel's God is a God that would have you kill is a mistake. It's to fundamentally misunderstand Heschel. Heschel's God is the God of the prophets. The God that says, your ritual is beautiful, but I'd also like you to support the widow and the orphan. I'd also like to see you not committing injustice. That's the God that Heschel wants to bring in. It is not God for God's sake and any vision of God that will pass muster. It is a vision of God that leads a person to take responsibility for other human beings. And that is something that the Middle East has, but could use a lot more of. Not to say that's not something that North American civilization can use a lot more of itself, but it's certainly very relevant. Heschel has a lot to say, and I think that you're seeing with some of the newer movements, actually, that some of the people at Hartman are responsible for, Ronnie Yeager, for example, and his sort of renewal, renewal of Jewish spirituality, that understanding of God is motivated very much by a sense of communal responsibility, a sense of caring about others, a sense of what we call between human beings and each other, ben adam l'chavero. In addition, to Ben Adam Lamakum, in addition to a relationship to God proper. That's God, a God that tells people to take responsibility. But we're going to see there are limitations to Heschel in the Middle East, and we'll get back to them. You might have already seen the man with a gun is like a beast without a gun. You might have already noticed that the will to power and the will to God are opposites. For him. We'll get back to it. Let's move on to Levinas and learn about the other. Emmanuel Levinas, French philosopher, born in 1906 in Lithuania, he actually was drafted to the army and ended up in a POW camp, a German POW camp, from 1940 till the end of the war. And of course they had a nice little Jewish section in the POW camp. Um, he also lost his mother-in-law, his father, and his brothers. His wife and daughter survived by uh, hiding in a monastery. So he too, the Holocaust is gonna play an important role in what he has to say. 
Levinas was famous for the following move, and I don't know that the following move was divorced from his experience during, his experience during World War II. He essentially took to task philosophers such as Heidegger, German philosophers, whose understanding of philosophy and the significance of metaphysics was focused on understanding what existence means. Ontology, the study of being. Now the study of being presupposes that everyone experiences being in the same way. What does it mean to be alive, to exist, I think therefore I am? It doesn't differentiate between people and it doesn't have a whole lot to say about ethics. And Levinas, who by the way said, it, I can forgive some Germans, but it's hard to forgive Heidegger. Levinas was deeply against the primacy of this type of philosophy, which didn't actually focus on the individual human being or moral responsibility, but focused on well, how do I know that I exist? Who cares? Sorry, any Heideggerians in the room? Once you exist, what do you do with that? That's what he wants to know. Take a look at number four, just in as pithy a way as I can say, and notice he writes this in 1961. This is post-World War II. Western philosophy has most often been an ontology the study of the nature of existence, what it means to exist. A reduction of the other to the same by interposition of a middle and neutral term that ensures the comprehension of being. What does it mean to be? Not what does it mean for you to be and you to be and you to be and you to be. What does it mean to be? As though there's some neutral space that exists outside of all of us that, that encompasses all of us. And he goes in a different direction. He says, I think that ethics is primary. And he's building a philosophy around it. Number five, the other becomes my neighbor precisely through the way the face summons me, calls for me, begs for me, and in so doing recalls my responsibility and calls me into question. Responsibility for the other, for the naked face of the first individual to come along a responsibility that goes beyond what I may or may not have done to the other, or whatever acts I may or may not have committed, as if I were devoted to the other man before being devoted to myself, or more exactly, as if I had to answer for the other's death even before being. A guiltless responsibility, whereby I am nonetheless open to an accusation of which no alibi spatial or temporal, could clear me. Even if I am not guilty for the suffering of the other, I did nothing to bring on the suffering of the other, I am still responsible for the suffering of the other. I still bear a responsibility to try to reduce that suffering. That is a radical thing to say. That is a radical thing to say. Who is the other? This other with a capital O. The other doesn't need to be someone who's different from me. People make this mistake all the time. The other does not mean someone who's radically different from me. It does not have to be someone of a different ethnicity. It does not have to be someone of a different religion. It does not have to be someone of different political views. The other is my sister. The other is my mother. The other is my neighbor. 
The other can also be someone who disagrees with me politically very virulently. Right? The other just means someone who's not me. And according to Levinas, I am defined by the other. Even before I'm defined by myself, I'm defined by the other. Now this is a little bit of a tricky, it's a tricky claim and people who are students of philosophy full time can probably do a better job of explaining it, but I'm gonna do the best that I can right here. Which is to him, my subjectivity is created by how I'm different from the other. Which means that I'm defined by the other, by definition. I am different from you and therefore I am me. I see the other even before I see myself. And of course you can find the paradox, well, if that person also sees the other before they, so who's the original, right? It's an important question, who's the original? For him, nobody's the original. Everyone stands in relation to each other. Guiltless responsibility. If Heschel's was the god of responsibility, for Levinas, it's the other who demands my responsibility. It's the other who demands my responsibility. Who's the other in the Middle East? Tough one. The Labor Party is the other? I think you're defining it as people who disagree with you. Right? Who's the other in the Middle East? Everyone. The other. We're all the other to the other. Right? Naftali Gilad Eyal of blessed memory. They are the other. Their parents are the other. The people who got together for the interfaith rally at the place where they were kidnapped, they are the other. Anyone who's not me is the other, or so we think. Now we have, we have a treasure. The treasure is that Levinas actually was asked to define who the other is in the Middle East. So he actually talked about how his philosophy could impact the Zionist project. And I want to skip with you. You have, there's a lot in here, and I, I gave you a lot on purpose because I want you to have it. I hope that you'll go home and you'll, you'll take a closer look at it. If you take a look, we're going to skip, we're going to skip to page seven. An essay that Levinas wrote in 1979 in which he talks about the role of his philosophy in Middle Eastern politics. And he's talking specifically about the peace made in Egypt, made with Egypt, excuse me, two years earlier. And he really says something remarkable. Number eight on page seven. The peace concluded between Israel and Egypt and the strange conditions in which it had been brought about by the visit of President Sadat to Jerusalem on 19 November 1977 must have seemed on the small screen like the first steps of mankind on the moon, though no more irrational. 
Despite the many peripheral details that threatened in the reality of things to make the agreement fail, despite all the obstacles that perhaps still awaited, and unfortunately we've seen some of those obstacles in the past few years, and threatened to reduce it to nothing, this piece in our view represents the only path along which re reconciliation had a chance of coming about because peace had come through pursuing a path that lay beyond politics. Whatever the actual role of the political route may have been in the itinerary of this peace. He may be naive, I don't know, but what he does suggest is that the peace made with Egypt in the 70s was not a piece of politics, convenience, but it was a piece of the Egyptians seeing the other. The Egyptians seeing the Zionist story and appreciating it for what it was, not for how it put them out. And he says very specifically, anti-Semitism is not simply the hostility felt by the majority toward a minority, nor only xenophobia, nor any ordinary racism. It's on the top of page eight. Even if we're the ultimate rationale of these phenomena that are derived from it, it is a repugnance felt for the unknown within the psyche of the other. For the mystery of its interiority or beyond any agglomeration within an ensemble or an organization with an organism, a repugnance felt for the pure proximity of the other man for sociality itself. It says, what is anti-Semitism? Anti-Semitism is people cannot fathom the narrative of the other. We are that other in that particular situation. People cannot fathom that narrative. But when it comes to Sadat, as he continues to say in the last paragraph below, this is the reason for the greatness and the importance of Sadat. Again, is he naive? I don't know, but I also don't care. This is the reason for the greatness and importance of Sadat. His visit was probably that exceptional trans-historical event that can be witnessed only, witnessed only once in a lifetime. For a brief moment, everyone managed to forget all the political standards and cliches and all the false motives that a certain wisdom attributes even to the act of a man who transcends himself and rises above his own prudence and precautions. Has Sadat himself perceived the entirely human humanity that unfolds within historical events in the form of Judaism, a patience and a passion perpetually renewed to the point of becoming an act that saves that same humanity? Has, I'm skipping a, a, a line, has Sadat sensed this in Zionism? which has been portrayed as imperialist in nature, even though it still bears suffering and dereliction deep within itself and outside of its own sense of truth, possesses no allotted and inalienable patrimony of the kind that supports those who elsewhere govern states. In other words, has Sadat realized that the Zionist project is necessary because otherwise Jewish blood flows freely through the streets? If you read the entire essay, that's basically what he says. That is an example of Sadat understanding the other. Guiltless responsibility. He's not saying I'm responsible for what's happened to you in the last 2,000 years and therefore I have to fix it. He's saying I feel responsible for your story and I want to help you along in that story. That's an incredible application of his concept of the other. Anyone want to do a little Talmud this morning? All right, let's do a little Talmud this morning. If Heschel is the rabbi of the prophets, 
I'm not going to say Levinas is the rabbi of the Talmud. He happened to write nine Talmudic readings. So he likes the Talmud. He likes the Talmud because I'll tell you something. As someone who did a doctorate in Talmud, there's a lot of good material there. And there's a lot of contradictory material there. It's a lot to use. So you can selectively choose from the Talmud and work that way. What's nice about Levinas, or what's, I guess, intriguing about Levinas, in a similar way that it's intriguing about Heschel, though I think it's more expected in Heschel, is Heschel wants to take his theology from Jewish sources. Levinas is a moral philosopher. He doesn't need to take his morality from Jewish sources. But he's interested in, in that project. He wants to connect his morality with Jewish sources. So go back with me onto page four. To be honest with you, I don't know if this is a third trimester thing or this is just a nine in the morning or this is just a human thing, but I really wanted to do this source a little earlier. But we're all together in this. I skipped, that's life. <laughs> Number seven, Babylonian Talmud, Bavakama. The Mishnah states, if someone brings on a fire, they cause the beginning of a fire, which consumes wood, stones, or earth, he would be liable. As it is written, if fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stack of corn or the standing corn or the field is consumed, he who starts the first must make restitution. Now the Talmud is animated by the question of why the verse in Exodus needs to mention thorns, corn, standing corn, field. Why mention all of these? Just say if you start a fire and things are consumed, you're liable. If you read in the Gemara, you read in the uh, Amoraic, the later material that follows right here, Rava said, why did the merciful one write thorns, stacks, standing corn, and field? Now, you better believe that if Levinas is going to be reading the Talmud, he's going to love the term merciful one. The Aramaic is Rachmana. Rachmana, merciful one. Often a reference to the Torah itself or to God, God's self. They are all necessary. We have to mention all of these. For if the merciful one had written only thorns, one might have said that it was only in the case of thorns that the merciful one imposed liability because fire is often found among them and carelessness in regard to them is frequent. Whereas in the case of stacks, which are not often on fire and in respect of which negligence is not usual, one might have held that there is no liability. If again, the merciful one had mentioned only stacks, one might have said that it was only in the case of stacks that the merciful one imposed liability, as the loss involved there was considerable. Whereas in the case of thorns, where the loss involved was slight, one might have thought there was no liability. So it's all a question of liability, and again, a man whose primary philosophy is about the other and guiltless responsibility and being responsible for others, he's going to love this sugya. He's going to love this passage. I could choose a few passages that he would not love, he chose the passage that he's going to love. But why was standing corn necessary? To teach that just as standing corn is in an open place, so is everything which is in open place subject to the same law. I'm happy to skip a bit. All the way down to the last paragraph. 
Couldn't the merciful one have written field and dispensed with all the rest? The rest is necessary because, of course, if, if field is included, then everything else is included. If he had written only field, one might have thought that for the products of the field, one owes reparations, but for the other things, not. That we are responsible also for the rest, that is what we are meant to understand. Here then, says Levinas on page six, is a rigorously halachic legal text. Its general meaning is clear. It affirms responsibility for the damages caused by a disaster due to be sure to human freedom, but which as fire immediately escapes the powers of the guilty party. Fire, an elementary force to which other elementary forces will add themselves, multiplying damages beyond any rational conjecture. The wind add its, adds its whims and violence to it, and yet responsibility is not diminished. But it's not my fault. I just started a small fire, a campfire. It got out of control because of wind. That's not me. And yet responsibility is not diminished. Rabbi Judah extends it to concealed goods which we cannot attempt to salvage because they are out of our sight. Are we speaking of war? Are we not in a time of peace? Aren't the courts there? Don't the judges gird their sashes? Isn't everything in its place? Isn't there justice? But perhaps the elemental force of fire is already the intervention of the uncontrollable, of war. It does not annul responsibilities. Guiltless responsibility. Even if you did nothing, you're still responsible. You find yourself in that whirlwind. Back to the Middle East. Oh, it's so nice and well and good that we can figure out that Sadat was able to see us as the other. Who are we supposed to see as the other? That's a more vexing question. Number 14 on page 11. The massacre at Sabra and Shatila. To refresh memories, September 1982, um, the Israelis were, uh, the IDF forces were in control of two refugee camps in Lebanon, and they allowed Lebanese Christian phalangists to come in, and the purpose of their visit, quote unquote, their purpose was to weed out terrorists in these refugee camps. Unfortunately, they ended up killing 800 people, many of them civilians. And this was a terrible scandal. And the Israeli army, not only, they, they helped. They fired flares at night so that these guys could see these phalanges. What did they know was going on? What did they not know was going on? What should they have anticipated? That's, of course, what animated the world in the following days. Emmanuel Levinas was interviewed about this massacre and question about responsibility and guiltless responsibility for deaths that were caused by others, like the phalangists killed these civilians, but in which the Israeli army was implicated and thus the Israeli people were implicated. This was the subject of the interview. We're gonna look at the second paragraph of Finkelkraut's question to Levinas. He says, graver still is our propensity to think since anti-Semitism has ma marked us out as the other, what then in concrete terms can be our responsibility towards the other? You see how he's misunderstanding what Levinas means by the other. 
I just want you to notice that. The other is not someone who's radically other than you. The other is anyone who's not you. And Levinas is going to make that clear. If we are the absolute victims, the insulted and injured of history, then perhaps we have no responsibility towards the non-Jew. We have no room for any imperative other than self-defense. And Levinas may surprise you here. First of all, he says, to return to the facts, because the interviewer had said to him, no one in Israel wanted to claim responsibility. He says, first of all, to return to the facts, I'd also like to remind you of the reaction of a great many Israeli Jews. The majority, I'd say. We here are not the only ones to have had this feeling of responsibility. In other words, you and I, enlightened Frenchmen. There too, they've felt it to the highest degree. It's an ethical reaction on the part of what I think is the majority of the Jewish people, the Israeli people, beginning with President Navon, who felt it immediately and who was the first to demand a board of inquiry. But you're quite right to, den to denounce the temptation of innocence. But this is not to forget the Holocaust. No one has forgotten the Holocaust. That in no way justifies closing our ears to the voice of men, in which sometimes the voice of God can also resound. Evoking the Holocaust to say that God is with us in all circumstances is as odious as the word Gat min un, mit uns written on the belts of the executioners. You have to remember he was in a German POW camp throughout the army, throughout the army, throughout the World War II. German soldiers wore belts that said God is with us. The SS didn't, but German soldiers did. So this is what he saw. Myself, I repeat, is never absolved from responsibility towards the other, but I think we should also say that all those who attack us with such venom have no right to do so, and that consequently, along with this feeling of unbounded responsibility, there is a certain place for defense. For it is not always a question of men, but of those close to me, who are also my neighbors. I'd call such a defense politics, but a politics that's what I call necessary. Alongside ethics, there is place for politics. And here he is going to give us a mantra. He is going to give us his definition of what Zionism is in terms of ethics and politics. I think that there's a direct contradiction between ethics and politics if both these demands are taken to the extreme. The Zionist idea, as I now see it, is nevertheless a political idea which has an ethical justification. It has an ethical justification insofar as a political solution imposes itself as a way of putting an end to the arbitrariness which marked the Jewish condition and to the spilt blood for which for centuries has flowed with impunity across the world. Its necessity is ethical. Indeed, it's an old ethical idea which commands us precisely to defend our neighbors. My people and my kin are still my neighbors. When you defend the Jewish people, you defend your neighbors. You defend the other. And every Jew in particular defends his neighbor when he defends. However, there is also an ethical limit to this ethically necessary political existence. But what is this limit? Perhaps what is happening today in Israel marks the place where ethics and politics will come into confrontation and where their limits will be sought. Unfortunately, contradictions like those at play between morals and politics are not only resolved by dint of the reflections of philosophers, it takes events that is lived human experience. So he basically lives with the question, politics and ethics, it's true, Zionism has both. 
The ethics are an ethics of defense. The politics sometimes end up having to be a politics of defense as well. And where they start to contradict, we have to, we have to learn that by experience and try to figure out what the balance is. So that's already an incredible message for the Middle East. And I think that's a message that the Middle East hears loud and clear and is thinking about very much. But then another one of the interviews, uh, interviewers asks him maybe a tougher question. Shlomo Malka, Emmanuel Levinas, you are the philosopher of the other. Isn't history, isn't politics the very site of the encounter with the other? And for the Israeli, isn't the other above all the Palestinian? Again, parenthetically, he's misunderstanding Levinas's explanation of what the other is, but this is helpful. My definition of the other is completely different, says Levinas. The other is the neighbor who is not necessarily kin, but who can be. And in that sense, if you're for the other, you're for the neighbor. But if your neighbor attacks another neighbor or treats him unjustly, what can you do? Then alterity, that is the other, takes on another character. In alterity, we can find an enemy, or at least we are faced with the problem of knowing who is right and who is wrong, who is just and who is unjust. There are people who are wrong. For Levinas, that's exactly the vexing question of figuring out who the other is. And you notice he does a dance. Innocence on any side are not the other I, excuse me, innocents on any side are the other for whom we bear responsibility. But those who seek to do us harm, our responsibility is primarily for us before it is for them. That's what the Middle East is constantly trying to figure out. That's what Israel is constantly trying to figure out. Who is the other for whom we're responsible? The average Palestinian versus the terrorist the continuum between those. Who is the other? This is deeply relevant. This is deeply relevant. So for Heschel, we have a God who can be emphasized more, a God who invokes our responsibility for the other. For Levinas, we have the other who invokes our responsibility for the other. But figuring out who that other is and who that God is, is not a simple task. But I now want to move to a place where I think both of them fall woefully short. The Israeli soldier. Power. Jewish power. Both of these men, and I am very happy to show you the proof texts and the back and forth, both of these men are shaped by their Holocaust or World War II experience. When they think power, they don't think Jewish power. They think power that has been used to persecute the Jews. They think Nazi power. And therefore, they're each very afraid of power. They cannot envision power as something that is aspirational. They cannot envision an ethics of power, seeing it as something that we can be proud of. And I wanna give you a few examples of where you see that come out. 
for Heschel, it isn't just the line of a man with a gun is like a beast without a gun, which I cannot imagine an 18-year-old, my niece, in military service who carries around a gun. She is not a beast without a gun. She has a responsibility to act ethically and morally. Heschel's not at the point where he can start talking about that. Because for him, power is frightening. Because it's been used against him. Not that that isn't an important moral voice, but to lose the image of the brave Israeli soldier, to lose the image of, remember those planes flying over Auschwitz a few years ago? We would defend the Jews. To lose that image is a big mistake in an army that's made out of citizens, in an army that prides itself or should aspire to be an army that is disciplined by Jewish ideals. To simply say, yes, war is hell, and we have to do it, but not at all to valorize the bravery of those who do it, is a very difficult position to hold in Israel, especially given what Levinas talked about as the rampant bloodshed of Jewish history that was arbitrary and allowed to flow through the streets. But for Heschel, it's not just that line. It's a whole way of thinking. In Heschel's world, there are two ways of looking out. There's wonder and amazement, and then there's expediency. Take a look at number nine on page nine. We're just going to read the first paragraph of it. And I know I want to leave time for questions. We'll make sure to get there. There are two primary ways in which man relates himself to the world that surrounds him. Manipulation and appreciation. In the first way, he sees what surrounds him. Things to be handled. Forces to be managed. Objects to be put to use. In the second way, he sees in what surrounds him things to be acknowledged understood, valued, or admired. And in number 10, Shai Held, who wrote the book on Abraham Joshua Heschel, has the following to say about that dichotomy. Heschel writes, not only do we distort our sight of the world by paying attention only to its aspect of power, we are reducing the status of man from that of a person to that of a thing. There is a strange cunning in the fact that when man looks only at what that which is useful, he eventually becomes useless to himself. In reducing the world to an instrument, man himself becomes an instrument. The, instrument is, in, the instrumentalization of the world leads to the disintegration of man. According to Heschel, our very humanity depends on our suppressed capacity for self-restraint. Never before has the challenge been clearer or more pressing. Humanity needs to bring its unbridled self-assertion under control. The more power man attains, the greater his need for an ability to master his power. Heschel's prescription for a humanity drunk on power is to return to biblical religion. 
Our civilization is in need of redemption, he writes. There is a war to be raged against the glorification of power, a war that is incessant, universal, and humanity's best weapon for that battle is radical wisdom, sacrificial devotion of our ancestors, etc. I agree. At the same time, before talking about the limits of power, there is a way to talk about power. For Heschel, power is dangerous and evil and scary. For Israel, power was a source of pride, and in a way is a source of pride. And then it becomes evil and dangerous and scary. But I don't know how you can, I don't know how you can inspire an 18-year-old who comes to the army to be an ethical actor by telling him or her, a man with a gun is like a beast without a gun. That's not what you would say. You look at the world simply as expediency and you don't look with radical amazement at the world. You're by definition putting them on a second tier. There has to be a language, there has to be a way that talks about power in aspirational terms that isn't simply a dichotomy between scary power and ethics that will control it. There has to be some sense of pride. And then we talk about how to check that pride and how to deal with that arrogance or potential arrogance. But Heschel, he can't, he can't break that dichotomy. And his own life shows him that he can't break that dichotomy. And I believe it's deeply diasporic, very similar to what we saw in Yehuda's talk on day one. For Levinas, it's worse. Number 12 on page 10. For Levinas, it's worse. Because for Levinas, the essence of a human being is their subjectivity, is their ability to see others for their subjectivity, their ability to differentiate between people, their ability to make decisions, their ability to have a will of their own, and the soldier has lost that. Number 12. But violence does not consist so much in injuring and annihilating persons as in interrupting their continuity, making them play roles in which they no longer recognize themselves, making them betray not only commitments, but their own substance, making them carry out actions that will destroy every possibility for action. Not only modern war, but every war employs arms that turn against those who wield them. It establishes an order from which no one can keep this distance, his distance. Nothing henceforth is exterior. War does not manifest exteriority and the other as other. It destroys the identity of the same. The visage of being that shows itself in war is fixed in the concept of totality, which dominates Western philosophy. In other words, you soldiers are all the same because you must follow our orders. You are not individual subject subjective beings. Individuals are reduced to being bearers of forces that command them unbeknownst to themselves. The meaning of individuals, invisible outside of this totality, is derived from the totality. The unicity of each present is incessantly sacrificed to a future appeal to bring forth its objective meaning, for the ultimate meaning alone counts. The last act alone changes beings into themselves. They are what they will appear to be in the already plastic forms of the epic. Incredibly stated. War and morality for Levinas are opposites, plain and simple. They are opposites. And do you know why they are opposites? Just two lines from number 13, the last two lines. 
we leave war to return to its ultimate source. And this is in the continuation of that Talmudic reading that we saw before, which I hope that you read on your own. We leave war to return to its ultimate source, which is Auschwitz, and into which it risks reverting. The very reason of war would come from a madness and would risk sinking back into it. For Levinas, every war is a potential Auschwitz in its chaos, in its danger, in it. He's animated by his experience. Again, make no mistake, the checks on power, the balance, the danger of power, of course it's there. But there's something before that that led many of us to walk around with dog tags when we were younger, strung around our necks. There's something before that that leads some little kids to dress up for Purim as Israeli soldiers. There's something before that that leads us to send care packages to our soldiers. And there's something before that that leads to something called the spirit of the IDF, which I looked at with a number of you last week, Ruach Tzahal, which you look at on page 13. What every IDF soldier is supposed to carry around in her or his pocket, the ethics of being a Jewish soldier, those are not simply an ethics of necessity. Those are an ethics of aspirationalism, of pride that a Jewish army is supposed to behave in a certain way, that Jewish power is supposed to express itself in a certain way. Take a look at where it says ethics. The IDF spirit. The Israel Defense Forces are the, are the state of Israel's military force. The IDF is subordinate to the directions of the democratic civilian authorities and the laws of the state. The goal of the IDF is to protect the existence of the state of Israel and her independence and to thwart all enemy efforts to disrupt the normal way of life in Israel. Before that becomes dangerous and scary and nerve-wracking, it's a mark of pride that Heschel, albeit he was a Zionist, and Levinas, albeit a Zionist, they can't understand from the inside because that hasn't been their experience with power, living in the diaspora. IDF soldiers are obligated to fight to dedicate all their strength and even sacrifice their lives in order to protect the state of Israel, her citizens, and residents. The IDF soldiers will operate according to IDF values and orders while adhering to the laws and state and norms of human dignity and honoring the values of the state of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. This is not a beast without a gun. That's not the description here. What I want to end with before I take questions, and first I just want to remind ourselves of the arc of what we did here. The arc of what we did, essentially, is we tried to take two fundamental positions of two incredibly fundamental philosophers slash theologians of the Jewish world in the 20th century of the diaspora, essentializing, even though there's a lot more to each of them, essentializing the prophetic Jewish notion of God in Heschel and essentializing the, I'm going to call it Talmudic, even though it doesn't stem from the Talmud, but let's try it, okay? The Talmudic Jewish notion of the other and responsibility of the other 
in Levinas and to show how each of those is a very salient, I wouldn't say critique from the outside, I would say literally they can become part and parcel of the conversation here in Israel. They're incredibly relevant. And now we've moved to a place where Heschel and Levinas didn't say anything. And what I mean by didn't say anything is they didn't say anything about the pride factor in being able to defend your people. Of course, Heschel is a spiritual radical. He's not going to write the textbook on, ethic, on IDF ethics. He's not practical like that. That's not the way that he works. He calls out a lack of ethics when he sees them. Right? That's what he does. And Levinas is a philosopher. He's also not going to get into brass tacks. However, of course, the fact that when they talk about power, they talk about it as dangerous, of course, that's deeply relevant to the Middle East. But that missing piece, that missing pride piece, which has been so characteristic of the diaspora, as you saw in Yehuda's talk, for 2,000 years, I think in some ways the tide is turning in both directions. The dichotomy between Israel and North America, at least I can speak about that, in terms of discussing power, I think the dichotomy is blurring because I think you have plenty of people in North America who are more concerned right now about Jewish pride and worried about the critique overwhelming the basic core of pride. And you have a lot of Israeli insiders who are overwhelmed by the opposite, that the pride is overwhelming the critique of actually figuring out who the other is. And the pride is overwhelming the critique of what kind of God are we looking for. And I think that's incredible. And it says something magnificent about the way that something that could be introduced as two radically different worlds, whether it's because of internet, globalization, more people visiting, more people making Aliyah, more Israelis in America, whatever it is, there's something really incredible about that dialogue. And that's what I want to end on. That point that today, Heschel and Levinas can be just as relevant as Tal to the conversation. But what's even better is that they're actually dialoguing with each other. And keeping that dialogue open in some ways, I think, is what this entire week has been about. Which is saying, here's a group of 140 North American Jews who come to Israel and have a stake and have an opinion and have what to say, and they should say it. And at the same time, they should hear what's being said here and bring it back with them to enrich the conversation in North America. So we're doing that dialogue right here, right now. I think that's a fitting way to end. I'm happy to take questions for quite a while. Thank you very much. Thank you. Eric, I love that facial expression. Talk to me. First of all, I want to thank you for an absolutely Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure. I, I, I only wish that this baby wasn't inside but outside to hear all of that applause. It's taped. Last night, uh, Ari Shadid, who's clearly a liberal and a progressive, said, mercy is dead in the Middle East. How is it possible, or is it possible, to develop a morality, a moral concept if you believe that? 
it, it seems to me that both uh, Levinas and Heschel would have great difficulty uh, spilling forth their philosophies in a world where they thought mercy was dead. So, how do you can, if you assume he's correct, I don't want to argue the facts. Yeah. There may be two different views, but if you assume yeah. he's correct, can one develop a moral approach to living in that type of life? All I can tell you is that Malik, did everyone hear his question? If Ari Shevit is right, mercy is dead, then how can you actually talk Heschel or Levinas? All I can tell you is that Malila Helner Eshed, who some of you have maybe heard from while you're here, oh my gosh, what an incredible human being. She taught us some Jewish mysticism yesterday, North American faculty, and I, I think we were on such a plane. I said, I don't understand, after you, after you study this, how do you go to the grocery store? Like, how do you, you know, and she said, oh, it's all one, it's all one. I said, okay. Okay, I'm, I'll buy your groceries for you if you need. Um, so, she told us yesterday that she had a meeting, which is a regular meeting between Palestinian students and Israeli students. And she said this week there were more Palestinians there than Israelis. I don't agree that mercy is dead. I think that mercy is not the dominant voice. I think it's very easy to become callous, and I think that's exactly where Heschel and Levinas come in, right? If you listen to the eulogies of those mothers for their boys, mercy is not dead, but it's suppressed. And that's the job of, I would argue, a generation of idealistic and woefully realistic, but young Israelis to figure out how to revive mercy, and they're doing it. They are doing it. Ari Shavit's generation, they may feel that it's lost. I know my Israeli friends, and I'm talking about people who teach in military colleges here. Mercy is not dead. It's not. And using Heschel and Levinas to revive its suppressed voice is a very good use of Heschel and Levinas, in my opinion. I think it's a great question. Uh, Mary Jane. Another thing Ari Shavit said last night as part of his proposal for improving relations is that um, Arab governments should financially support the development of the Palestinians um, economically. And I'm going to give him the responsibility, I mean, in Heschel and Levinas, that we all have for the other. Would it be such an awful idea for Israel and American Jewry to help financially improve conditions for the Palestinians? So these are good questions. Did everybody hear Mary Jane's question? Okay. Here, first of all, it is being done, right? Meaning if we talk on a factual level, it is being done. Dollars, North American dollars do actually go into initiatives to support the Palestinians. I think Levinas's last um, I think two things. I think number one, the question of sending support, financial support, and not knowing where that support is going is I think one of the major anxieties that differentiates the insider and the outsider. In some ways when an Arab country sends money to Palestinians, they can in some way have more control over where that money is going and how it's going to be used. 
North America sending money, I think there's a little bit more of a veil there. So I think there's actually a practical question there. The second thing is I'm very touched by Levinas's interview after Sabra and Shatila in the following sense that he says your responsibility for the other is, is for your neighbor. And it's important to figure out who is whose primary neighbor and who is not your neighbor. All, to my mind, Ari Shavit's uh, point about Arab countries financing Palestinians, all his point is, I think, is saying that the Arab nations have to view the Palestinians as their neighbors. I don't think it's saying mutually exclusively that other people do not. I think he's just adding that Arab nations have to see the Palestinians as their neighbors. That, that, that's what I got from it, if I read correctly. Um, yes, Adriana, I'm sorry, we, we learned together this week, but. Um, Heschel and um, uh, Levinas um, do not understand power because of their, they were in shape or their experience doesn't justify. Is there any philosophical or theological basis in contemporary um, North American environment that would explain or would justify the, the um, dimension of power and how it affects uh, Israel and the Middle East? Well, so it's really interesting. Remember, on everyone heard her question? She said, "Where? so let's find North American philosophies or theologies that can justify power and can talk about it. Are, do they exist? Recall that at the end of um, Yehuda's talk, he presented Yitz Greenberg, and does anyone remember? I can't remember the other person. And David Hartman. He let's stick with Yitz, because he's, uh, Rabbi Greenberg is a North American, purely North American um, figure. He presented Greenberg's attempt to develop that theology and that philosophy. But I will say that I think the most um, flourishing theology and philosophy that's being developed on this or has been developed on this are the philosophies that you see among the early Zionists. And I, I mean both the early Zionists, secular Zionists, I mean religious Zionists, they actually tried to, whether using the Maccabees as their vision, right? Jerry Zoldan asked me earlier, he said, why, are we, why look just to rabbinic, uh, uh, rabbinic models? Let's look further back. Let's look for the Maccabees. The Maccabees were models. What, what were their ethics of war, right? So there are people who were mining this material. Um, I think right now the best thing for North American philosophers and theologians to do in terms of trying to figure out power and its place, is less to develop their own and more to tweak their Israeli colleagues' versions. I actually think that's more powerful. So when I think, for example, um, I, I think of uh, whether it's Rav Goren, Rabbi Shlomo Goren, who was developing a uniquely Jewish ethic of war, um, or Rabbi Shal Yisraeli, who similarly does that, I find that in the dialogue with North American counterparts, a lot of good could come out of that thesis, antithesis, synthesis. I think that that's, I would advocate for not trying to just come up with our own, but to do it in dialogue with Israeli partners or what's been written already. That, that's my thought process. Um, sir, I don't know your name. 
Wait, can you tell me your name? Thanks, Michael. I don't, want, I don't know your name, but I want to know your name is what I meant to say. You have a lot of Michaels here. Yes, Michael. You're the original. The first Michael. Sorry, Michael. Yeah. A number of times you kept referring to pride uh, as a counterpoint to Heschel and uh, Levinas in a way. Uh, and I wonder why, before you get to pride, you don't get to necessity and the issue of defense. And he, like reading the Uber uh, piece, which is skipped, really talks about Beautiful. Uh, he's, he's not necessarily proud of having an army, but he says we need to have an army. There are three steps. Thank you, Michael for bringing us back. I left you in number 15. I'm not going to read it now, but there's this great, uh, uh, there's this great letter from Martin Buber to Gandhi. It's an open letter. They, they weren't pen pals. Gandhi essentially calls, in the 1930s, Gandhi calls for Jews passive resistance in Germany. Great idea, right? Great idea. And Buber writes, you don't understand, sometimes there's a necessity for war. We don't want to have to use force, but we use it. You're absolutely right. Let's, let's build it again. Necessity, pride, ethics. Great, I appreciate that. Thank you, and it's meant to be in there. I didn't say it, thank you. Um, I'm trying to go by Jackie. Um, so it seems to me that I'm hearing a con common theme from different people, and that is that, as you said, let's say the under 40 crowd here in Israel, and maybe we can translate that to the North Americans, is getting the fact that they understand Jewish power. Because I kind of like go back to the desert, and they have to get rid of the, the slave mentality to be able to understand independence. <coughs> It's the, almost the same thing that, the same way that Heschel and Levinas couldn't understand Jewish power because it was not anywhere in their experience. And maybe we have lost the over 40s and 50s for good reason because we haven't got that, we've been in such a period of transition. We're not really sure whether Israel is powerful or, or and we have Jewish power, or should we be afraid? And because of all the condemnation that Israel gets special attention from the world, that it, 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 it even more confuses us. Jackie, that is a great point. Did people hear Jackie's point? The point essentially, the, the, oh, it's a beautiful point. The, the point essentially is the younger generation of Israelis and maybe Americans, they're starting to get what Jewish power is. Whereas the earlier generation in some way is so kind of traumatized. You like that I called it the earlier generation? So, the, right? The sophisticates, okay? The, um, the earlier generation in somehow, somehow is traumatized, um, is traumatized by Jewish power and is not sure. I think that's all the more reason why the generations need to dialogue with each other. Because I have to be honest, I think it is dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. I think it is dangerous for a young military officer who never experienced 1967 and the pride that that brought with it not to talk to someone who has. It's dangerous. I think it's dangerous. That's what I have to say about that topic. I hope that's sufficient. Sir, David. Yes, David, right? David? 
So far, good. Yes, thank you. So far. Okay. Um, uh, first of all, I congratulate you on covering the way you did the Hassel and Lovinas. But in trying to follow the philosophy that you're trying to instruct us about, especially given your topic, which was insights from the diaspora, mm -hmm. uh, which, without being critical, was perhaps medieval insights on a space program. <laughs> um, you talk a lot about Levinas. Yeah. And I kept in the other, which is something we've all heard about for years. And yet, I was just wanted to ask if you think really you're creating an idol out of the individual. You have reduced the other just to yourself and made everybody else, I mean, everybody else is the other. And in a way, you sort of deny the existence of a collective identity, a collective family. Now, for Israel, the other is not her or him. You is not, you are not my other. The Palestinian is my other. And I am the other for the Palestinian because there has to be a collective sense of identity that motivates the practicality of what we want to talk about in terms of ethics. So I was just wondering if you would comment at all about the real failing of Elise Levinas in terms of his inability to take a collective identity and create or interpret an ethics that will allow the state of Israel to function and which will not deny legitimacy to Zionism, which incorporates political power with ethics. I think that's a fabulous question. You're basically asking, David, and tell me if I'm getting this right, to finding the other as another individual as opposed to the radically other, it makes it seem like all individuals are just sort of walking around this earth, qua individuals. But really when you think about the state of Israel, the state of Israel is supposed to be a state of a communal social group and vis-a-vis -vis other groups, they are other. I actually think, and maybe I didn't, um, maybe I, I wasn't, uh, I didn't emphasize this enough. I think that we're, um, Levinas talks about Sadat understanding the other. I think it's an example of what you're talking about, which is Sadat representing a whole people is able to look at Israel as the other for whom he is responsible. And at the same time, Levinas is very comfortable with atomizing the other so that it doesn't have to be, in the Sabra and Shatila case, for example, it doesn't have to be Oh, the terrorists are the other the same way that the civilians who were killed are the other. They're two different groups. So I think you're right. I think we'd want to see more of Levinas's other as you can have a social group to whom you have your primary loyalties and then you can have an other that's outside. I believe that is in Levinas, but I think you're right. I think I could have shown more of it. God, historically, or whatever, gives the commandments not to me as a Jew and her as a Jewess, but to, the to us, to all of us. And there's an otherness there as well that allows us to define a collective morality in which we don't have an individual sense of God, but really a collective sense of our religion. Yeah, there's a way in which for Levinas it's a, it's a delicate dance because he wants every individual to be able to be subjective. And yet he clearly recognizes, as someone who is a Zionist himself, 
he clearly recognizes that there is also a subjective collective. But where you get the balance on that, David, it's a very, I think that's a very insightful question. I have to think more about it. I think it's a very insightful question. I think Carol was raising her hand before, yeah. I, I don't hear much about the community development movement, which is very much stronger in the United States than other countries. Um, but, you know, that's activism. Maybe that's where some of this connects and can connect with young people. Um, Heschel, on the same line of thinking, Heschel, if I'm not mistaken, I could be, was very active in the civil rights movement. Yeah, with um, Jews and blacks. And that relationship in the United States is somehow weakened. And that is very upsetting. I mean, that's something, you know, maybe perhaps could be strengthened. And one last point, since you're a linguist. The word anti-Semitism, speaking about the other. What is the root of the word Semites? I mean, in, some people are saying, you say, well, anti-Jewish, you use other words other than anti-Semitism. Okay, so good questions. You know what I want to do, Carol? I want to, I want to I take what you said and I want to use it to qualify in an interesting way. You say, or what I hope is an interesting way, you say that activism, what, what about activism in this discussion? It'd be interesting. Activism is a form of power. And Jewish activism in the civil rights movement was a form of Jewish power. And I think that because Heschel viewed the civil rights um, activists as the underdog, he didn't view it as they were powerful. But I love what you're saying, because what you're saying is power comes in many forms. And let's not lose sight of that. Jews have had power for 2,000 years. It's a different form. And I'm not just talking about Stad Lanut, where we had to go lick the boots of whoever was in charge, okay? I'm talking about real activism, right? Whether Jewish socialism, real activism, that there's power in that, and let's not lose sight of that. The question about anti-Semitism and should you use a different term, the reason, I, I, from what I understand, anti-Semitism versus anti-Judaism goes something like this. Anti-Judaism is against the practices and if we could just root out the practices, we're perfectly comfortable with the people, if we could just root out the practices. Whereas anti-Semitism is, we're not very comfortable with the people, right? And Semite actually comes from the word Shem, okay? The son of Noah, biblically. So Semites become, we become known as Semites. But nowadays, everybody in the Middle East is a Semite, right? Everybody in the Middle East is a Semite. So to be honest, does misery love company? People want to be anti-Semites and hate me and also hate my Muslim's brother, brother and sister. Maybe we could all get together and help each other or something. Okay? I'm an optimist, though. Um, I'm going to take, because it's 1028, and I don't want to keep people extra, I'm going to take your question, sir. What's your name? Uh, Steve. Steve, thanks. It seems to me, we, we, philosophy's war, if you think about the United States and America, we think about incredible repulsion of the two wars of the last 30 years, the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, unjustifiable. At the same time, you think of the guilt of Americans for the fact that we allowed the Holocaust to happen, the Roosevelt narrative. 
Yep. And so we're possessed by these different things that go back and forth. In 1967, we're miraculously thrilled with Israel, and we're terribly tortured by Vietnam. Um, yeah. And so you have in 1988 basically the first real publication in the U.S. of David Grossman's book about the Yellow Wind, questioning the power of Israel. And you have these phenomena that come up even to this day where we still have endless sermons in the United States about whether it's 1938, essentially negating the incredible power of a brilliant army. Um, how do we deal with all, these are the contradictions, and in fact, the voices that seem to me in Israel that speak to power are the novelists in many ways, about the, in, in a certain sense, and the Shabit. And Shabit in this case is secular. He's the first one to admit, he doesn't care about some of these sort of questions of God. He cares about power in a secular sense. So I've laid on a couple of things there. Yeah, how is it possible that we think at any moment Israel is teetering on the brink of disappearing and at the same time it's the greatest military outside of America? <laughs> it's, it's a wild contradiction that we live with. And I think <laughs> this is, I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm, I'm not under 40. Um, it's very tough for me to think about within a hundred years, within 70 years, it's very tough for me to think about trying to get rid of one or the other. It's very tough for me to think about getting rid of either of those notions. The notions being that Israel is on the brink of, right? At the same time, I'm not an Israeli. Israelis will tell you, not all, but many will tell you, it is offensive to think, for you to think that we are on the brink of destruction all the time. That is offensive, right? That is not productive. It makes us seem like victim, right? Even the person who's running the video camp, he's looking at me, he's going, yes, that is offensive. You have a voice too, sir. What's your name, by the way? What's your name? Ma'ashem Shalcha? Avram. Avram has a voice. It is offensive. I'm a diaspora Jew, so it's important for me to keep both of those open because I'm not stupid or naive or foolish. But an Israeli Jew is also not stupid, naive, and foolish, and an Israeli Jew will tell you that is offensive. And I don't know how to bridge those two. Is there a theological bridge? Is there a theological bridge between those two? <laughs> I engage. I love it. Is there a theological? I didn't know I engage with theology. That was that's new to me. Um, is there a theological bridge? Let me think about that for thirty seconds. Seriously, is there a theological? I'll tell you next year. Somebody, somebody wants to get out of here. Um, is there? And we'll end with this. Is there a theological bridge? Auschwitz to Sinai. I'm trying to think of. Um, Auschwitz to Sinai by uh, David Hartman's essay, essentially, of those being sort of the two poles of Jewish life, the question of whether you're going to look at Auschwitz as the defining moment or you're going to look at Sinai as the defining moment, whether you look at covenant or crisis as the defining moment. But it doesn't solve it, Eric, right? It doesn't hold them, it doesn't hold them together. 
doesn't hold them together. Maybe that's the point. We have to hold them in confidence. <laughs> yeah, I have to think about that question. And on that, I'm going to end. I'm going to think about that question. It's a great question.